you're listening to the City Lights Podcast, where we are equipping you to exalt Jesus and extend the kingdom of heaven right where you are. Thanks for joining us. As I read through Ephesians 5, we'll be on the back half there. Everybody say the word with me, inherit. Everybody say inherit. Inherit, inherit means, uh, it means you're rich. Inherit means that relationally you've been passed down something from generation to generation. In Ephesians, we are learning that we have inherited so much from God. Um, and, and I've said it all along as we've talked about this series uh, throughout the last couple of months that um, if we don't know what we have in Christ, if we don't know uh, how rich we are, um, we're just as, as not well off as somebody that doesn't, isn't rich at all. And so um, God has made us very rich. In fact, one of the things that, um, one of the scriptures in, in, in the Bible that I love the most, one of my favorite scriptures is in the story of the prodigal son in speaking to um, the father uh, analogy that Jesus says in a parable in, in one of the gospels. Um, he, he, he talks to uh, an older son um, in, in a relationship, and he says to the older son, as he says to all of us, really, he says this really powerful statement. He says, everything that I have is yours, and I will always be with you. This is a statement that he says to, to one of his sons in this allegory, this metaphor, where there's a father and a couple of sons, and the father leans over to one of the sons, the way that the heavenly father, the way that God would speak to us, and, and he says, you don't need to fight for things that you already have, because everything that God, the one who put the stars in the sky and the one who created you know, Mount Everest, and the one who created, um, you know, the, the Mississippi River, the one who hung the stars in the sky. He, he says he's with you in everywhere you go, in everything that he owns, uh, you have. And so inheritance just tells us we don't have to fight for what we have. We've already been given by grace, the, the con- complete wealth of heaven lacking nothing. And so today we're going to be talking about the topic of marriage as a gift, uh, Ephesians 5, at the back half of Ephesians 5, whenever I, I perform weddings or do weddings and officiate ceremonies, I use Ephesians 5 because it is a blueprint, I believe, for what heaven sees marriage as. Um, culture and experience can tell us that marriage can be broken and a burden, but, but Jesus sees marriage as a blessing. In many ways, I think the scripture meets us the way that it met the church at Ephesus to, to tell us and to, to teach us and to restore to us that marriage is and still, still is and always will be a gift and a blessing and inheritance and something that we have and something that we hold. It's kind of a cynical thing to say, but when I was in college, I used to um, play this game with my roommates called Happily Ever After, and we would debate back and forth over whether or not uh, famous Hollywood story couples would end up together in the end. Um, like, we already know, just because Rocky is Rocky, that Rocky, you know, and, um, and Adrian, how could I forget her name, right? Rocky and Adrian, of course, end up together. I think they end up throughout the series, and we know that they're together. We know that, like, you know, Ryan Gosling, uh, you know, Noah and Allie from The Notebook, we know they end up together. They, they, they pass away and pass on to their next life together in bed in the old people's home. We know that, that they end up together. Um, I would like to think, I truly would like to think that Julia Roberts and Hugh Grant from Notting Hill, they end up together. Like, I feel like they've got something started there, and it's too good to be true, and I think that they can hang on. She gave up, you know, her celebrity to go and marry this commoner and Hugh Grant in Notting Hill in 1999 when the movie came out. I, I hope they stay together. My favorite movie of all time is Jerry Maguire, and I really I really hope that somewhere out there that Dorothy and Jerry are still together with little cute Ray, who's probably 32 now and hopefully has moved out and has a job. Like, I hope that they're together. I really do. But I don't know about Keanu Reeves and Speed. 
Like, I'm not really sure if he and Sandra Bullock are still together. They, they kind of had a, a, a very quick start on a very fast bus ride. And usually, you know, marriages and relationships that start under crisis maybe don't hang up, you know, in, in peacetime scenarios. I don't know about them. You know, I don't know about how to lose a guy in 10 days. I'm not sure if I trust Matthew McConaughey, if I would trust him with my daughter. I don't really know if I would really trust that that relationship's still there. And we watch these films, like, we kind of, we kind of giggle at ourselves and, and we... We have this mixed emotion, I think, when we sing love songs and dance to love songs or watch love movies or love stories play out because we have this tension between us of great hope and cynicism for uh, true love. We have a tension, um, as it's on the screen, as we watch love stories to have a hope and a cynicism both at the same time because we have great hope and cynicism for love itself. We grow up in, in environments that are not happily ever after environments. We watch the movie, but then we also remember our past and our parents' marriage. And we know that there is no such thing as a perfect relationship. We know there's great threats and great um, attacks that happen on marriages, spiritually, emotionally, financially, that it seems that there's a lot of stakes that come against the, the marriage uh, relationship. We've seen our fathers, if they were around in the first place, let our moms down. We've seen them not rise to the occasion. We've seen them fail, maybe fail time and time again. Maybe even in a cumulative sense, they would define the marriage as a failure. And we've seen our moms not be the fullness of what Jesus would have a wife to be. And we've seen them not stand by their post and not, not own into the covenant that they set at the altar. And we see as, as we get engaged in marriage and find somebody that we hope to find this love with, that we're not quite sure if it actually exists, we watch it unplay and unfold in our lives, and as much as we try to not repeat the past, it seems the past seems to chase us, and a lot of the scripts that we read in our own lives tend to uh, hinder back or hark back to scripts that we heard in our own parents' uh, living rooms and bedrooms and kitchens and dining rooms. Marriage is this incredibly beautiful but also broken place at the same time. It's, it's this place where there's nowhere else to hide that I am rendered helpless and vulnerable in many respects. There's no more excuses. There is only me and her, her, or him and me, in the Garden of Eden that is our home. And continually we see the patterns play itself out where the charms that used to woo us towards that person become strings of a puppet show, and we see, we see the, the frailty of marriage and frailty of relationship and the frailty of love and that's why when we watch movies like Notting Hill and when we sing I Will Always Love You by Whitney Houston, we have a kind of sad remembrance that maybe the thing that I hope for most doesn't, doesn't actually truly exist or maybe doesn't exist in the way that I thought it would be. But Paul encourages us and I believe Jesus models for us that marriage is not a burden but a blessing. That marriage is work and it is more than Hollywood presents itself as. In fact, it's deeper than Hollywood. It's deeper than stories or or cultural axioms, or, or, or wishes, once I wished upon a star, Disney, you know, Notting Hill, Never Never Land, on and on. It's more than romanticism, but it is the very gospel itself. In fact, what we're going to read this morning shows that marriage is meant to be a metaphor. Scripture, in fact, teaches us that marriage is a living drama designed to reveal Jesus's heart for his church. In other words, marriage is not a, a destination. It's, it's a pathway to a higher thing. It's meant to demonstrate and show off and reveal and preach maybe the best sermons ever preached about who Jesus is in, in his pursuit of the church. 
How much do husbands love their wives? How far should they go to pursue their bride? How long should they chase her? How long should they fight for her as long and as hard and as far as Jesus fought for his church? Unto death. And how radiant, how beautiful, and how precious is the bride of Christ. As precious as the wife that stands by your side or stands at the altar when you attend the wedding this Saturday. That's the picture he's, he's saying. I want you to see, you know, Tim and Janet, you know, Joe and, and, and Diane. I want you to see these people, but in them, I don't just see, see individuals and altar. I want you to see Jesus in heaven painting a picture and, and, and playing out a living drama like, like the, the true reflection, but also the broken imitation of what Jesus is trying to convey. This is a passage that you'll see in Isaiah 54 to help accentuate this for us this morning. For your maker, he says, your maker is not a militant. He's not a politician. He's not a teacher, but he is a husband. And when you sin, and when you sin against him or sin against one another, you're not just, you're not committing a legal act. You're committing a relational act of adultery, he would say in Hosea. The framework of the way he describes how God is pursuing people, his covenant bride, is not a friend or a boyfriend or a fiance, but a husband, a covenantal spouse. It's a living drama playing itself out over and over again. The places of brokenness and, and bitterness, the place of joy and great, great strengthening. Marriage itself is the, the demonstration today of the fullness of Christ in our midst. And so marriage is a blessing, it's not a burden. Even in its brokenness, it continues to be a blessing. Like Jesus has come to do many things, including building family, but at the core of those things, there is a, for those that are called to be married, a boy meets girl scenario that is in some frail way able to reflect the very nature of God more than any sermon could ever produce. And so as we talk this morning, obviously the scriptures are never exclusive. And so everyone in the room has either been in a marriage, is married currently, might be heading towards a marriage, or might be called towards singleness, but we all can benefit from the scriptures right where we are. I would say to those that are married, the application this morning is going to be very simple, but those that are not married can certainly look forward to marriage and become the kind of person that can play their part in this kind of living drama. Those that are beyond marriage might find this scripture helpful to reflect backwards on their marriage or think about others that are married because we all are playing a role to try and protect and strengthen and, and preach health into what ultimately is, 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 is under attack and under fire so violently all of the time. And so this scripture is a wide open door for all of us. Let's listen to what Paul has to say. He says, husbands, he says, I want you to love your wives just as Christ has loved the church. And the very practice of this should look like giving yourself up, laying down your, your pride, laying down your ego, laying down your ambition, laying down your whatever it may be that gets in the way of you pursuing your bride. I want you to lay it down to the extent that Jesus laid down his life. And the purpose is not just to be a great hero. The purpose is not to look in the mirror and feel good about yourself. The purpose is your, is your bride. It's your wife, the way that Jesus is pursuing his people. You're pursuing your bride every day, emotionally, spiritually, relationally. And the benefit, benefit of that is that she's going to become cleansed by the washing of the water of the word and to present him to herself as, radiant, as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. So I want us to see in the beginning uh, onset of this description of what a husband is and what a hus husband isn't. There's a lot of credence and, uh, and, and, and emphasis and focus on the husband being a protector and a provider as, as, a, as a breadwinner. And for sure, in the later on verses, that becomes, I, I would say, a major role, but potentially a secondary role to this first call. To me, the opening uh, 
comments from Paul describing marriage are not just the husband as a protector and provider, but the husband as a pastor in his home. The first thing that the husband is stewarding before finances, before protection, before having a gun to protect the safety of his children, the first place that he creates safety, the first place that he creates life and love and longevity in his family is to steward the word of God in his home. But further, I want you to to see in this study that that the word of God is not actually written in this sense of the, the, the Greek word, Lagos, which would mean the scripture, the Bible study, the memorization of the words on the page that are in your ESV, in your NIV, in your message Bible. It's not actually the stewarding necessarily of the Lagos. It's, it's even more than that. It's deeper than that. It's more relational than that. It's stewarding and, and, and harvesting and honing in on the rhema word of God in your family. The rhema word of God is not just what God has said, but the rhema word of God is what is God saying in your family. So husbands, your first duty when you come home from work, you may be tired. You might have had a a, a day, you know, one of those days when you just want to go crawl into bed and go watch football. You signed up when you got married to be a pastor in your home. You don't have a white collar, but you are a pastor, which means you are washing your family daily, either with lies or with the truth or with nothing. But the word there, washing, it's a pruning. It's the same thing as catharsis. We talked about once in a, in a Hebrews, I think, or um, maybe it was an Ephesians series. But it's, a, it's, it's seeing your, your, your wife and seeing your kids brought nearer to the presence of God. So here's a question we might ask ourselves is, uh, husbands, does your proximity to your wife help or hinder your wife's ability to hear God's voice? That's your, num- that's your number one job description. So when you come home and, and, and your wife... Or maybe it's, a, it's, it's somebody that you're dating. She's going to talk. She's talking to you, right? Like, hopefully in a healthy marriage, there's communication. And she's talking to you. And she's talking to you about things like the neighbor or the kid's grades at school. Or she's talking to you about exercise. Or she's talking to you about a book that she read. And she's sharing about life. But ultimately, what she's doing, whether she knows or not, she's sharing parts of her heart with you. And if we follow Paul's line of thinking in the Holy Spirit of what he's doing with Jesus, he's, he's saying that your job is to emphasize that conversation because you're not just emphasizing cultivating conversation with her, you're cultivating a vertical conversation with her Jesus. And so our job, first and foremost, before we go ahead and put bacon on the table, you know, bring the bread home, be the breadwinner, be the husband or whatever it is that we see as the envisioned icon of what a husband is, the first and foremost job is to seek out the heart of your wife. It's not a Bible study in James where we're going to talk about the Bible. No, you're going to talk about the heart of your wife. You're going to seek into, not just to dig into the scriptures, that's the, that's the floor. The ceiling we reach for is, can we dig into the heart of our wife and when she talks, are we promoting the conversation or hindering it? Do we pause and listen or do we interject with advice? Do we lead her towards ourself and our opinion or towards the Holy Spirit? Do we allow her to become codependent on us so that we become the Jesus in the the environment? No, good pastors don't become the Jesus. Good pastors lead others towards Jesus. Are you becoming a person that continually is able to listen to the heart of your wife and dig out the Holy Spirit speaking truth so you can eliminate lies? Can you picture that with me, that that you're home on Monday afternoon and you're, you're making your first line of leadership in your home. How can I separate lies from truth in my wife's mind? I know there's lies in there. I know there's lies in her heart. I've got to get into her heart so I can separate the lies from the truth. That's your job. Single people, for better or for worse, if you are a single male, be intentional about the way you speak with women. If you are interested in that woman and potentially in a relationship, then maybe one of the things you might consider is you are in a long-term job interview 
seeing if you are the type of person who knows how to pursue that woman's heart to find and cultivate a conversation with Jesus. That's what she's asking you to do. That's what she's looking for you to do, whether or not she knows it or not. Single men, if you are talking to somebody that's married or talking to somebody you're not pursuing, do not pursue her heart in that way. She's not impressed with your hair or your abs or your car. She wants to know, can you treasure and value her process with Jesus? It is a powerful thing, and be aware of it. Be aware and responsible for the, for the hearts of sisters in Christ around you. Women, you having a lot of friends in the friend zone that are guys that process your heart with you, that's a dangerous, tentative spot. Be intentional with the way that you share your heart. Be intentional about the way that you talk with other men or other married men. It is important that we all play a role in defending and accentuating one of the greatest sermons that ever preached in marriage, and we play a part to understand the sacred thing that happens of men being a pastor and a shepherd in their home. It goes on to say this, in the same way husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but they feed and care for the body, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and literally become one. So saying that, that um, this, this uh, special, miraculous, heavenly, divine thing happens when husbands and wives go to the altar together. The pastor or preacher might say this saying, what God has joined, let no man separate, that there is now two people woven together by the Holy Spirit in matrimony to oneness. So one of the first things that, uh, one of the first fights that Kyra and I ever got in, we married in 2005, happened on the way to our honeymoon. Didn't even make it to the honeymoon, got on the way there, already messed it up. Had an awesome Audi TT that we were driving down to an awesome house down in Marco Island, Florida. All of it was paid for. We looked a lot richer than we were. And, um, and, and we were headed down to this beach house that would have taken like, you know, a one-night stay to get down there. And, and before really knowing um, about, you know, being a husband and before really understanding what it meant to be a leader in the home and before understanding really what I was doing at all, which I hope most 21-year-olds, I think that's kind of the case. But... But nonetheless, I kind of had this disagreeing picture of uh, a preferred future with Kyra, of, of how we were going to spend our, our time together. And so we were about mid-range, around about Tennessee, let's say, headed down. And, uh, well, it's not mid-range, but, you know, a little earlier than that. And, and we were going to post up and try and find a hotel. And, and, and I probably hadn't written it. I, I probably hadn't spoken about it in our premarital counseling. Probably should have when the guy said, what's your expectations? I should have known to know what my expectations were. I should have known what my communication was and, and to communicate to Kyra what my hopes were. But I didn't do that very well. And so what happened is, is that I had imagined that we would kind of go down there in this like romantic, kind of like backpacky adventure, spontaneous, kind of like not really planned sort of way, which was not what Kyra was thinking. Kyra, of course, was right, and I was completely wrong in the sense that she was thinking, we are on our honeymoon. Like, money is not an expense right now. We have money given to us at the little dance thing, you know, that Italian weddings do where they hand out dollar bills and give money. We have a good amount of money. It's like, we're not saving it for anything. Let's spend it and enjoy the season. And so I'm thinking adventure, spontaneous, serendipity. She's thinking strong, stable, dependable, safe. And so when I pulled up to the Motel 8, that was not a win. Okay, I wish I had a time machine to go back in time. I was thinking, we're going to rugged, we're going to go rustic, this is going to be fun, we're just going to be adventurous. This is not the vision that Kyra had in mind. Nine times out of ten, we don't really struggle in our marriages with leadership, uh, with following problems. We struggle with leadership problems. We don't communicate well. We don't have a vision. We don't have a plan. And so, without vision, people perish as well as the marriage perishes. 
And so oftentimes, I put it this way, oftentimes our marriage doesn't struggle from following problems, but leadership problems. Our leadership often is more about getting our way than leading the home as our body. Politicians become uh, lacking in authority when they make decisions about war when their sons are excused from fighting in them. They're not treating the country as their own body. They don't have to pay the price. They don't have to cash the check. They don't have to, you know, own up to decisions. When CEOs get elevated so high, they get detached from the people that are on the line making the cars, and so they cut bonuses and make decisions unempathetic and understanding to the body of workers. Jesus says in the marriage and in family that the head should never be detached from the body. In fact, as the husband leads or as anyone leads, we are making decisions as though we are making decisions for ourselves. We're never making separate and un- with lacking solidarity and lacking empathy decisions. We're always making decisions that listen and learn before we lead. This is what he's saying in terms of this body analogy is that husbands, like typically as our wives struggle to follow us, it's not because we're making decisions that want to benefit her. It's because we're making decisions that benefit us at the expense of her and the expense of the family. That I want the kids to go to bed, but not because I want them to have a good bedtime. It's just because I'm tired and worn out and I don't want to parent anymore. Right? That's, why, that's, that's where we get a divide. I, I don't want to you know, um, have Thanksgiving at our house or whatever it is we get in a fight about because I want to watch football by myself. These are the types of decisions we get in fights about, and then we get upset about the whole submit and following thing. It's like it's not really a following thing. It's a leadership thing. I really am hard-pressed to find people that don't want to follow sacrificial and others-minded leaders. When somebody gives something to me, goes out of their way to sacrifice for me, like doesn't have to give something and give something to me. I want to follow them. I'd follow them off a cliff. I, 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 like, like it's funny. It's like when leaders are uh, self-oriented, ego-minded, you know, want to promote themselves, use the body to promote themselves kind of thing. It's like you, you don't want, you want to, you'd rather push them off the cliff rather than run off the cliff. This is the nature, like we want to follow. Follow is not a bad word. In America, we look at it as a bad word because power has been abused so many times, but it ultimately is not a bad word. So here's what I want us to think about as husbands. As husbands, based on the first verse of Ephesians, like I think it's 21, 521, before we get into the marriage and wife, we are all submitted. So as husbands, I want you to think about this. We are always submissive leaders. That sounds like an oxymoron, right? Like we submit to one another as we lead. We don't lead out ahead and say, do this and do that, okay? So think about the, the language here as God shows us how to lead. He says, we are echoing God's authoritative voice when we use the word let us. You see how let us is different from do this, do that? Think about the very beginning of time when God created space, when God created the world. What are the, what's the language he used with the Trinity? us. Let us create man in our image. Let us create the stars. Let us create the heavens and earth. Let us be secure in our leadership, be secure in our vision, be secure and caring and compassionate in what it is we want to do. Because true authority and true power God is showing us, even in early Genesis 1, it actually leads in places that all of creation already wants to go. So the true test is if I say, let us go in this direction, if people aren't following Potentially, the question is not in the following, but in the leadership. Do we have a vision that people would want to follow? Do we have in our marriages a plan that the wife and the body of the family want to go with? The submissive leadership of Jesus with his disciples, although he's the maker of heaven and earth, is let us go hence, let us go forth, let us go to the upper room. There's this opportunity for agreement. It's not do this, do this, do that because I said so. It's let us 
as I lead forward, as I set the example, as I show a better future, you naturally will want to follow that because I'm saying something that heaven and earth already want to follow. The stones, the rocks, the ocean, it wanted to be created because that's how good God is. You couldn't present a better good. And so when he said, let us, there didn't need to be coercion or violence or manipulation or pushiness. There is an agreement that would follow, that there is a a yes that would be easy to follow a let us. And so husbands, we'll, think, we'll tie this up at the end, but, but does, your, does your leadership, and, and as you lead in general, if you're a single person and, and you're leading ministry or organization or group or, or job, does your, does your leadership sound like a let us? Does it have a, net, a level of mutual submission? Does it have a, 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 a synergy, a, a teamwork, a collective collaborative that says, I have an idea, does anyone have something better? Verse 22, wives, submit yourselves to your own husband as you do to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church his body of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives would submit to their husbands in everything that they do. So just a brief study. Um, There's a cool verse that I want us to think about that might change our paradigm about the word submit. It's in Psalm 46.1. It says this, that God is our refuge and our strength. He says, it's our ever-present help in trouble. The Holy Spirit, one of his many words, paraclete, you know, encourager, advocate, one of the things that the Holy Spirit is, God himself, is a, a helper. Capital H, he's a helper. Okay, so, and, and so God, in Psalm 46, when David is talking about God, he's realizing that in some ways we are God's helpers, but in other ways we engage in our goings-on, and God comes alongside to help us in what we are doing because God is not afraid of the word submission. He will help in our time of need. Jesus um, maintained and attained glory while he worked on this because the scripture says he perfectly submitted himself to the Father's will. Help is not a patronized woman, you know, patronizing term to keep women barefoot in the kitchen and kind of just doing whatever the husband say. No, help, help is, is of the Lord. Help actually means you're lacking strength. I'm going to lend my strength to what you're doing. Help, helping is not an inferiority thing. Submission is not an inferiority thing. It's an order of operations thing. It's a complementary thing. It's a like lead and follow, a call and respond, a let's and a yes, a let's and a yes. But it's not an it's not a um, inferiority thing. So a couple of things that you might think about in terms of the word submission. Submission is not inferior. It's complementary, almost like two hands on a piano. One plays the bass and one plays the melody. Submission is not taken in the Bible. Submission is a gift that I give you because I follow into the Lord. You don't earn it from me. You can't win or lose it from me. I choose to submit to you. That's what true submission means. I choose to follow you, not because you're smarter or greater or better or more handsome or whatever. It's like I choose to follow you because that's my yes. I choose to follow you. Submission Submission can disagree. Submission in the household, submission in the church... It can look like I don't agree. Can we move towards one another in this disagreement? It can, it can look like protest. Submitted protest, but humble protest, but protest nonetheless. It's, it's part of the process of, of harmony is that there's different notes being played. Submission can influence. You can lead upwards. A lot of times we, we sit in these places of submission and we're like, ah, my boss stinks. I can't do anything about it. I'm stuck, blah, blah, blah. It's like, no, Jesus' portion is way too big for that. Your, your season is on purpose right now. How can you lead upwards? How can you suggest a better yes? How could you partner with those that are above you? Because that's the practice that once we get to the place of leadership, then we will 
be able to present better let, lets and better vision and better future. Submission can influence and submission can take responsibility many too times and all too many times. I think the wife or, or, or those of us just in, in submission places in our work can, can almost abdicate responsibility as though the husband is responsible to be Jesus. And that's one of the biggest things that happens, I think, as a marriage is that the wife is looking for the husband to be Jesus when he's not Jesus. That's one of the things that, that I think can really drive wedges in marriages because then there's high expectations and then there always will be disappointment because the husband is not Jesus. He is a, a pastor in the home to help to care and admonish the word of God and in your world, but the, the husband is not Jesus. So this is where we might land on this thing. Family is leading and following that fights to move towards harmony where leadership is never a trump card and submission is never inferior. Where leadership is never a trump card and submission. This is the culture we're trying to cultivate inside of marriage, inside of family, inside of business, inside of small group is, is a let's and a yes. Wives, one of the best thing you can do is to fight for the yes of your husband. To find the yes of your husband. Your husband might not even know what his let's is yet. There are ways that you can influence and contradict and challenge to help find his yes but the bottom line is, is, is don't propose the let's and, and, and disavow him and, and, um, and pacify him from finding his let's. Here are some questions, wives, you might ask husbands to help to find the, the let's, to find the leadership in him. Here's some questions you might think. Who are your heroes, husband, and why do they inspire you? I believe that every hero is, is hidden in that hero that inspires us. It's a calling to become like that hero. Like that's what we're doing when we're watching Braveheart. We're seeing a hero play itself out and we're thinking that's what virtue would be on display. That's what Jesus would look like in my world. And wise, as you ask that question, there's a powerful platform you've created for you to hear and respond. Many times we don't know what the, yes, what the leadership looks like because we're not asking. But we can take responsibility for that. We can absolutely do that with our manager, with our, with our boss. Like, what are you going with, you know, for here? What is the, what's the let's on your heart? What's the let us on your heart? Who are your heroes? What, what would you do if you weren't afraid to fail? Many times, husbands aren't leading, they're not pastoring, not shepherding, because they're afraid they can't do it. So they'd rather not do it than fail at doing it. What would you, how would you see our family? How would you see our future? How would you see our partnership if you weren't afraid to fail? You couldn't mess up. How can I help you live fully in your calling? These are the types of questions we might ask. It's a, it's a picture of a harmony where the left hand and the right hand, they partner together. They play different notes, not the same notes, and they use tension and space and distance on the keyboard to play. You can be a single person and play a bass line. You can be a single person and play a melody. What Jesus is saying is that with Jesus and the Holy Spirit, we can put even a more f flourishing and vibrant sermon on display to live out a living drama that portrays the very love of Christ towards his church. A couple of questions for you. If you are single or you're just thinking about in a non-marital standpoint how we lead and follow, we are all leaders and followers all the time. So here are some questions that you might think about when you lead. When you lead, we talked about this so far today, do I help those around me hear the voice of Jesus or do I try and intrude and let them hear my voice first? That may be a contrary question. Am I thinking about what that person, like the Holy Spirit is speaking to every one of your employees that you work with. Are you of the business of being a shepherd? You don't have to have a seminary degree to care for people right where they are and help them accentuate truths in the midst of lies. If you know a truth, then preach the truth. Give them the truth. If you hear something that doesn't sound like the good shepherd, it sounds like a hired hand or a wolf has entered into that, what are the ways that you can cultivate a conversation with them in Jesus? To speak and not speak, to question, not answer. 
to, to speak in and give testimony. I don't know. Like the Lord is going to make you a master builder, but how can you help people around you hear Jesus better? Do I make decisions from solidarity and empathy is the second question. In other words, do I make decisions without listening first? A lot of times we're listening and just waiting for other people to get done talking. And we say, well, it's not good practice to not listen because people get mad if you don't give them some space to blah, 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 blah. No, that's not what it looks like. Like listening actually means I can't lead unless I know where they are. How can I lead somebody if I don't know where they are? So in, in a marriage context, if you're talking to your kids, if you're talking to, to your daughter, if you're talking to your son, you can't give them the lessons a father knows best until you know best what's on their heart. You've got to dig into their heart. You've got to ask questions. You've got to listen before you lead. You've got to learn before you can lead. And so that's the question is like, do you lead as a head separate from the body or do you, do you shoulder in and say, I'm with you? If I call for a war, I'm going to fight the war with you. If I call for a change, I'm going to go through the change with you. If I move cities and go to another state to go work in a, in a, in a new business, I want to make sure you're okay. I'm not just making the decision because I'm happy. Like I want, I'm making this decision for us, and there's a level of trepidation and, and almost good, holy fear that says, I don't want to make this decision despite you. I want to offer a let's that's easy for you to say yes to. This is what it would look like, a call and response. Do I lead with a let us or do I lead with a go and do this? When I follow the gift of submission that we can offer to other people as a pleasing thing before the Lord, even if the people that we submit to don't even follow Jesus, there's a kingdom blessing that can happen when we follow our boss as well. Do I look for the lets from the leaders I follow or do I just make my own up? Sure, there's plenty of managers and leaders and bosses that aren't giving you clear direction, but, but there's ways to take responsibility for that. There's ways to make that better. In other words, there's a two-way street that you can lead upwards. Do you look for the let's? Do you fight for it? Do you inspire, do you inspire it? Do I fight for the yes? Do I, it's like, my, like, like the other day when I, or the other month when I said, hey, Kyra, let's go to Disneyland. And uh, typically if I throw out a big idea like that that's stupid, there's like a, well, <laughs> well, maybe we can go to Asheville. Like, like she's digging into my heart and she's trying to figure out like, what are you really looking for here? Because I know we can't go to Disneyland because it's not good for the naps, it's not good for the budget, it's not good, it's like, it's not the right move, it's not the right yes, but what can we do? Like, that's the thing, is like, if there's a no for the let us leadership, what's the yes that we can find instead of just being a protester? How can we get involved and find the yes? How can we look for the best yes that we can do together? Lastly, do I submit to the work, uh, the work to the leaders I follow. Do it. Submission doesn't have to mean personally, like I submit my, my body. It's like I'm submitting ideas. What do you think about this? Hey, husband, like this is what I'm struggling with. Can you pray into this? They might have turned you down 10 times, but it's holy and blessed and right to bring it the 11th time. I'm going to submit this question to you. I'm going to submit this. I want to know your input. That's what submission might look like. So I close with this. It'll be on the screen. I believe in the church sense, like where we are as a family, family members in this church, we follow and lead. And we're all leaders and we're all followers in some way. We're all following somebody. We're all leading somebody else. Are we, are we stewarding that position well? Because we're not all just communist equals. It's a kingdom and there's, and there's levels of authority and there's levels of responsibility. And, and we share that, that beautiful harmony that we fight for a leadership where leadership is never a trump card and submission is never passivity. It's never being a doormat. And this is what I really do believe about, about church, about family, about all types of businesses and, and leadership that you're in. The future health and growth of City Lights, I'll put it in this way, is truly this. How humbly will God's people lead his bride? 
in the, in the platform of life, in that space of, of, of marriage, in that space of um, now pastoring and eldering, in the space of small group leadership, in the place of ministry leadership and team leadership, there is a question, will the leadership in this church, will it serve itself or will it act to serve others? That's the premier question. In an ego-free, others-minded, service-oriented, race-for-last culture, there's almost no limit to what God can do when nobody needs the credit for it. Almost no limit. Contrarily, if, if the leadership, if the husband, if the wife does not sit in assertively, like intentionally, proactively into the space of leading and following into harmony, there's almost no, har- no limit to the harm that can be done in a church. God is about the inheritance of harmony. This is why he talks about husbands and wives in the middle of Ephesians or the end of it is because we've not just inherited heaven, we've inherited one another. We've not just inherited relationship, we've also inherited responsibility to steward. And the most beautiful, most exemplary, most blessed life that we can live together involves a harmony of participation of leadership and following. It's a part of the, of the, of the process of, of how God is playing out his story to us and to the world. Literally, Jesus says in John 17, I pray that they're going to be one just as we're one. And he says, because, 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 I want them to be one because others will then see the glory of God put on display. Heard maybe the quote, you could put it this way, is that the best apologetic for Jesus is the church unified. The best apologetic is the leadership of a church serving its leadership, taking the towel as leadership, like submitting itself to the best lets of the family. That's what we're calling each other to, is let's not lead for what's comfortable for me. This is my old church, and this is the way that I did it. This is the music I like. This is the you know, priorities that I have. It's the question, no, how can I listen well to what others are asking and needing, and how can I, how can I serve the least and the last in any environment that I have? As though it's my own body. And as I follow, as I, as I look towards the, the vision and future of City Lights, as I look for the property, as I look towards, you know, culture development, as we lean into that into the next year, like, what is the let's? Because I want to know it, because I want to follow it, because I want to be on board, because I want to fight for the yes. I don't just want to be leading in my own direction. I want to follow in line with a harmonious symphony that's going on in the local church. This is the template that he's given, is that we're not, uh, we're all, we're all created equal, we're all equally valuable, but in our positions, we play different parts. We're complementary. Are we complementing the body of Christ? Are we playing the melodies along in time? Are we, are we fighting for the yes? Are we fighting for the let's? Are we unified with one body and one spirit? Not just in prayer, but in action. Would you guys stand with me as we um, respond in worship this morning? I just want to pray special um, blessing. I think it's just really important, um, even for this season of our church, um, as God leads us. Um, but you are an amazing leader, Jesus. I mean, you just, you laid down your life and you, you really did win the race for last. You, 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 you put on display for us an impeccable and unoffended um, version of what authority looks like. Your authority, as we read in Ephesians 4, it actually lifted up gifts in your train and in your wake. Your authority, your leadership, created more leaders, you said on the mountain of Galilee, when you said, go and make disciples, like all authority has been given to me. And the very first thing that you said is, now you have authority because I have authority. What kind of a leader does that? What kind of a, a shepherd, a pastor, um, a husband does that? That all authority is, is had and in a world when power is something to be kept and taken. In fact, you just gave it away. You, you stored it. In fact, you, you blessed 
others in your wake and around you so that they could become leaders, they could become shepherds and pioneers and, and world changers. You entrusted us with that much, not because we earned it or deserved it, but because you saw it in us and you spoke to it before it exists. You said, let us go and make disciples of all nations. That's what you invited us to do. And so our submission is a decision. We are not coerced. We don't have to get penalized for not following, you know, like we are, we are following you because we get to, not because we have to, because you haven't left, left us behind because you, you see greatness in our future. And so we follow along in your path um, because you are the best shepherd. It's a, it's a grace and a, and a wonderful thing to say yes to you this morning with all that we have in Jesus' name. Thanks for joining us. If you have been encouraged or challenged by this message, please subscribe and leave us feedback on our iTunes channel. For more information about our church, visit us at www.citylights.cc. Thanks again for exalting Jesus with us.